Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for the first time in almost 500 podcasts, I'm going to make a slight change to my normal format. As you know by now, my format has always been to introduce a talk or interview, play it, and then make a few comments. Well, today I'm going to intersperse my comments as I play a recording of a conversation that I had recently with Emmanuel Seferis, rather than uh, saving them for the end of the program. And here's why. <laughs> if you've been paying attention, then you realize that it's been quite a long time since I conducted an interview myself. My reasons are numerous and uh, not really important here. But after watching several of Emmanuel's talks on YouTube, I decided that his input is something that we can all get a lot out of here in the salon. And having failed to find someone to conduct the interview for me, I, uh, well, I decided to do it myself. But there was a rub, of course. The last time that I did an interview myself, I was still using Windows. But now it's been almost four years since that foul Windows code from Microsoft has touched my PC. And until I decided to do this interview, there uh, hasn't been a single thing that I couldn't do easier and better with Linux. And over those four years, I haven't experienced a single virus, any malware, and my machine hasn't locked up with a blue screen of death even once. But uh, in wanting to record a Skype conversation, I ran into my first technical challenge with Linux. And this caused me to uh, have to reschedule my conversation a couple of times as I uh, struggled to find a way to record a Skype conversation on my machine. And by Monday morning, I was sure that I'd found a way to do it, uh, kludgy as it was. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> after we made our connection, uh, and even though I had tested my setup with the uh, Skype Echo Lady, it turned out that Emmanuel couldn't hear me when I was recording my end of the conversation. So I turned off the recorder for my voice, and, uh, well, our conversation proceeded nicely. My plan then was to uh, go back and record my questions later and then insert them into the recording of Manuel's answers. And, uh, well, that turned out to be a really dumb idea <laughs> because, uh, well, it just sounded really stilted and just didn't work right. So what to do? Well, I've decided to insert my comments after each answer that uh, Emmanuel gave to my questions and more or less do a running commentary on what he said. Now, the only reason I'm going into so much detail here is to let you know that while Emmanuel and I did have a really interesting exchange of ideas, in this format he didn't actually have a chance to state any disagreements or clarifications to what I'm saying. And uh, for that, Emmanuel, I sincerely apologize. Uh, hopefully I haven't misstated anything here that you might object to, but if so, please let me know and I'll be sure to add your corrections to a future podcast. So now, uh, let's get on with the show, as they say. Well, if you listened to my program from last week, you heard Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, giving his 2015 Palenque Norte lecture at Burning Man. And uh, you heard him mention that Emmanuel Seferis happened to be in the audience at the time. So you also know that uh, Emmanuel is the person who founded DanceSafe, which is, in my opinion, one of the most important organizations that uh, we have in the festival, dance, and psychedelic community. And you're going to hear more about that in a few moments. But instead of starting at the beginning, so to speak, 
My first question for Emmanuel came from something that I heard him say in a YouTube talk where he pointed out the current thinking among young people concerning their perceived differences in the use of the terms ecstasy, molly, and MDMA. And here's what he had to say. I've been an advocate from the beginning of getting away from slang or street terms for drugs. And this is even more imperative when you look at the MDMA market, which is uh, hands down the most adulterated drug market in the world. There are hundreds of drugs sold under these slang names. And uh, most of the time, users buying Ecstasy or Molly aren't getting uh, MDMA. Um, but what, what it first dawned on me how dangerous these slang terms are was when I first started DanceSafe and r- realized that uh, at that time, back in 1998, 99, young people didn't even know that ecstasy was its own drug or its own molecule, MDMA. Um, to them, ecstasy were just these little pills that you purchased uh, some of them made you feel good, and some of them made you feel bad. Uh, and when I asked, well, what do you think's in them? They would say, oh, different drugs, heroin, cocaine. You know, they, they would list the drugs that they had heard the names of. They didn't even know that uh, ecstasy was supposed to be MDMA. So, um, and, and that makes sense when you think about it, right? It, 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 in the world of these young people, when slang terms are being used, you know, the scientific information can just get lost and their language and understanding is based on their visual, tactile, and auditory world, which is a social world where people are selling ecstasy. And um, so we began our education process by explaining that, no, no, ecstasy is supposed to be MDMA and you're not getting good or bad ecstasy, you're getting real or fake ecstasy. And um, I can tell you why we've gotten away from that strategy now and are dumping the slang terms completely. And um, that's, that's the history you asked about, right? So what happened was, you know, through the late 90s and into the early 2000s, the market was so adulterated that um, most ecstasy you purchased was not MDMA and, and Ecstasy, again, back then was predominantly pressed tablets dyed various colors with logos in them, you know, green clovers, pink Teletubbies, etc. At that time, if you found loose powder or crystal MDMA, it generally was MDMA. And that's because the pressed tablets were largely being manufactured in Europe, Eastern Europe, and we're being smuggled over, whereas the smaller chemists in the U.S. or Canada um, didn't have uh, pressing machines, and they were selling uh, MDMA or ecstasy, if you want to call it that, uh, and loose powder form. And they were small chemists who you know, still kind of believed in the power of the medicine. Um, they were making enough money. They weren't uh, trying to maximize their profits by uh, selling uh, bunk. And so if you found loose powder back then, it generally was MDMA. And the dealers at that time, to distinguish it from the press tablets, which were you know, largely fake, 
gave it a different name. And interestingly, they started calling it Molecule, which later morphed into Molly. And so in this tactile visual world of young people, now suddenly a new name appeared, and Molly is the predominant name now, because at least in the U.S. now, today, the majority of MDMA, the majority of what's supposed to be MDMA is in the form of loose powder. Now, that's not because the small chemists in the U.S. um, are making more of it. It's because today China has entered the game, and there's so many new synthetic drugs being sold and purchased over the dark net and shipped through regular mail systems and all of that it, it now is loose powder. So so today when you find Molly in a loose powder format, it, it does not at all mean it's pure MDMA, even though the myth is still there, because back in the late 90s that was the case. And as you may have heard me say in the past... It was back in the early to mid-1980s when I first became involved with MDMA that for a year or so, all that we saw were little 120-milligram white tablets with uh, no logo or embossing at all. Uh, They were just little white pills. But then sometime in late 1985 or so, the pills more or less disappeared and we started getting it in little vials of white powder, which at the time were 100% pure MDMA. The adulterated stuff hadn't yet begun to appear. And so I mentioned to Emmanuel that when the powder form first appeared, hardly any of us had uh, a scale capable of properly measuring our MDMA. And so we just guessed as uh, to the size of the dose that we were taking, and, well, we eyeballed it. That's what we called it. Yeah, that's really a big problem today, and it's made harm reduction efforts a lot more difficult um, it was really a, a important and wise decision back in the early days uh, when it was legal to press them into tablets because MDMA is uh, the kind of drug you should take orally and you should take in a proper dose at the beginning. And then, uh, as you know, the protocols were that about two to three hours into it, you could take a small booster dose between one-third and one-half of your original dose. This these were the protocols developed in the late 70s, early 80s by the therapeutic community, um, which we would call that proper dosing. And uh, when the tablets come with known doses, they lend themselves to, um, to that oral uh, intake, and you can break the tablet in half or thirds to get your booster dose if you want. When, when, now suddenly, when it's all loose powder... Um, not, not only do young people not know or have the ability to weigh their dose um, accurately, uh, but uh, it also lends itself to insufflation, snorting, um, finger dipping, uh, and this is not really the appropriate way to use MDMA. Combine that with the fact that so much of what's out there is actually methylone, mephedrone or other cathinone class stimulants which are more similar to cocaine and other type of stimulants that you can use in small amounts and redose all the time what we're really seeing today is molly use shifting more towards that kind of stimulant type behavior rather than a psychedelic behavior where you take a no dose you come up have a plateau and you come down 
um, this uh, really, you know, is, is dangerous and is a result of prohibition and the lack of uh, honest education and known, you know, pure pharmaceutical grade drugs that should be available to adults. When Emmanuel mentioned some of the dangers associated with prohibition, it reminded me of another talk that he gave in which he spoke about the fact that some national drug surveys are showing a significant decrease in the use of ecstasy among our younger friends. Apparently, uh, many of these surveys only ask about ecstasy, not MDMA and not Molly. And since so many people no longer equate the word ecstasy with MDMA and think of it as a combination of things like heroin and cocaine, they, uh, of course, say that they don't use it. And so I asked him to comment about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was one of my main uh, efforts uh, when I founded Dance Safe, and that continues today uh, also. You know, the general public confuses all of the words together. And uh, that's uh, very dangerous for the well, understanding of what's really going on. Uh, here, here's a great example. I just watched this video a few days ago, a news show from Tallahassee on the dangers of Molly. And they were interviewing um, basically poor working class people um, who were addicted to what they were calling Molly and checking themselves into rehab and staying up for, you know, two weeks at a time, <laughs> uh, snorting Molly every day. And it was uh, obvious to anyone that under- knows MDMA that the drug that was uh, they were referring to here was not MDMA and, and was almost certainly either alpha-PVP, which is given the nickname Flocka, um, methylone or some other cathinone drug, which would work if you used it that way, right? MDMA would not work if you tried snorting it throughout the day, multiple days in a row. We know that. It, uh, you have to put a week at least between your use in order for your serotonin to be replenished before you can feel the drug again. So whatever they were talking about in this uh, you know, scare tactic news report was not MDMA, but yet so many more of these types of reports are coming out and uh, the public is very confused, and even experts, right? They had toxicologists on here talking about, you know, Molly and MDMA interchangeably, uh, very inaccurately. So I had a conversation with Joseph Palmer, who is a, a, a re- researcher, epidemiologist, and he, he um, has been struggling to get uh, his studies published around this fact that the um, the most uh, accurate uh, survey organization that we have around illicit drug use is called Monitoring the Future, but they have yet to update their uh, language. So they ask young people, "Have you taken ecstasy? You know, in the last month, last year, et cetera." And that's how they compile statistics of you know trends on illicit drug use. And of course, uh, they're saying, uh, no, I, I, I'll never take ecstasy, right? But they don't ask these kids if they've taken Molly. And, and in the minds of these young people, ecstasy and Molly are different things. So uh, it looks as though Molly use or in, you know MDMA use or 
I would probably best way to say it is intended MDMA use because people are really looking for MDMA when they take Molly, even if they're getting a cathinone instead. So the monitoring, the future studies make it appear that intended MDMA use is lower than it really is because they're only asking young people that have taken ecstasy. They don't even understand what the difference between ecstasy and Molly and on top of the fact that there is a great deal of confusion about the terms being used for MDMA, there remains also the big problem of determining exactly what that white powder is that one has bought uh, most likely from a stranger. So I asked Emmanuel about how someone who wasn't at an event that uh, had a dance safe testing booth present could test it themselves. Well, th- they can actually purchase a testing kit off the dance safe website. Um, a home testing kit, uh, which is um, very reliable in identifying MDMA versus a cathinone. Um, but it doesn't detect purity. So if they purchase something that had MDMA plus something else in it, the color change using their home reagent kits may mask the presence of other adulterants. So we like to um, say that these home reagent kits, while fairly reliable at positive identification, um, are, cannot detect purity. So the only way to know whether the sample you have is pure is to send it to a laboratory for gas chromatography testing. And, and there is one that you, um, they can use. And I started this back in 1999. Um, it's now being managed by the Arrowids. Um, and it, the uh, web address is uh, ecstasydata.org. Fortunately, it costs some money, but and potentially up to a two-week turnaround. But if you're willing to wait, <laughs> I would strongly recommend that you know what you're taking before you take it. Then you can send just a little bit, 20 milligrams is all you need to send into the lab. And um, you can go back to the website and check the results um, uh, no longer than two weeks, I believe. So that's ecstasydata.org. And if you go to ecstasydata.org... On their home page, you will see the latest 100 test results of substances that were sent in for testing. Scrolling down the list, I discovered some really interesting results. For example, the little pills called Blue Mercedes that were being sold in Vancouver, Canada just this past December contained not only MDMA, but procaine, methamphetamine, and caffeine. And a little pill called UPS that uh, actually looked like a mini version of the UPS logo contained caffeine, lycodane, methamphetamine, benzocaine, procaine, and acetaminophen, which <laughs> sounds like a truly horrible combination to me. It's a, it's a really interesting list, and you'll probably be surprised about some of the findings that are posted there. And by the way, you aren't required to reveal any personal information when you send something in for testing. You can remain anonymous and uh, still have your substance tested. And the prices for testing vary with the type of substance, uh, but for a pill, it's only $40. Now, when you send something in to be tested, you're asked to let them know the city and state where the pill-slash-material was obtained, the approximate date of the acquisition, what it was sold as, and what you suspect it to be, if those are different, and the name that the pill is known by, if any, like uh, Crown or Dolphin or something like that, and the name that it was sold as, uh, if it was sold known by something else in your area. Uh, 
So far, they have almost 4,000 test results posted, and the results can be sorted by city and state as well as uh, in other ways. It's really an exceptional service and is managed by my friends Earth and Fire Arrowwood, who are also the founders of Arrowwood.org, which you've heard me speak about many, many times. Next, I mentioned how impressed I was back in 1999 to learn that he had founded DanceSafe and had begun doing free testing at some raves up in Northern California. What many people don't know or don't remember is that back then there was a major push in the U.S. to ban electronic dance music because uh, some small-minded conservatives like Joe Biden thought that by eliminating raves and other venues featuring electronic music that they could stop the use of MDMA, which was uh, then being widely used at these events. And by the early 2000s, uh, organizations such as the Electronic Music Defense and Education Fund were actively fighting these laws. And it was in that atmosphere of severe paranoia on the part of politicians and law enforcement people that Emanuel took the, what I consider, very bold step of setting up a free testing service to check out the contents of pills and powders being sold at these venues. I can still remember my friends and I talking about how brave these dance-safe people were. And, uh, by the way, I still think that it was an exceptionally courageous thing to do, particularly back then. And uh, so I asked Emmanuel where his courage came from. Sure. I, I, you know, I don't know where I got my courage from. <laughs> I've always been, uh, you know, a rebel rouser, I guess, and an activist since I was a teenager. Um, and I, I, I had done uh, needle exchange prior to starting Dance Safe. And before uh, volunteering for the, the Berkeley Needle Exchange, I did prison uh, reform work in, with an organization in downtown Oakland, and that's where I really learned the disastrous effects of the drug war, right? Mostly these were African-American families who had male relatives in prison for life. I think this was just after three strikes. It was like, so, you know, I, I, I sort of got into drug policy reform through a racial and social justice background. I'd never been to a rave. Um, but I had used MDMA um, 10 years previously as a teenager uh, therapeutically, and it really uh, transformed me, I would say, saved my life. So um, now we cut, I'm living in San Francisco 10 years later, as an activist, and a friend of mine gives me some MDMA again, and I get online to research it, right? Because back in 86, when I first did it, 86, 87, 88, uh, time period, there was no internet. <laughs> you had to go to the library. I remember going, um, now you're old enough to remember the index of periodical literature, this giant, massive volume, green books where you could look up a topic and it would tell you every magazine that did an article on it. And I think back then there were a total of three articles on MDMA, you know, so I got online and I said, wow, what have we learned about this drug in the last 10 years? And that's when I discovered how adulterated the market was and that the Dutch government had a program. They were funding or peer counselors would go out and set up booths at um, these events with this little chemical reagent and test pills to help young people avoid ingesting the fake ones that were causing the majority of medical emergencies. And I just said to myself, wow, this is great. I want to do this here. This is a way I can um, honor a drug that was very helpful to me, also expand harm reduction 
to, well, to be quite frank, a white middle class community. Um, because before Dance Safe, before pill testing harm reduction around ecstasy, right? Harm reduction, at least in the United States, was perceived as something that only applied to gays uh, um, and IV drug users. Gays, addicts, and IV drug users, right? But not to my kids, right? It was essentially needle exchange and don't kick the addict out of the shelter just because they relapse, but work with them a little bit. That was pretty much harm reduction, right? But now we had a situation where prohibition was creating grave dangers for party drug recreational users that included a lot of well-educated, uh, middle-class white kids. And I, you know, having come from this racial justice background, thought to myself, wow, you know, here's a way to expand the philosophy of harm reduction to apply to a broader segment of the population, which I felt would also reverberate and help improve our drug policy around some of these other drugs, too. That, in a nutshell, is kind of why I started Dance Safe. And then I had really no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and really, my experience entering the rave community, um, you know, uh, training young people in peer counseling, learning about the culture. I fell in love with the culture, right? That's the one thing, right? I had used MDMA prior to that in small groups of friends or in very strict therapy settings. I had never been to uh, and, and, and used the drug um, in a social setting with thousands of people. Um, I was astounded at the camaraderie uh, and the lack of violence at the, the, the ethnic and racial um, mixing that took place in these Oakland raves. White kids were a minority. Asians, Latinos, African-Americans, white kids, all together having a wonderful time, not a single fight. I remember, you know, most of the young people, probably 9 to 10 p.m. is when they would take their ecstasy, and you get to, like, midnight and like there would be spontaneous eruptions of cheering and expressions of love and hugging of everybody, strangers. It was so different from the punk alcohol-driven culture that I came of age with. I was astounded. Um, it was positive, and uh, you know the only problems were these medical emergencies that were happening, which we were able to learn was happening because of DXM, dextromethorphan, in the fake pills were really driving the crisis back then, and, and that was one of the main uh, excuses used for the crackdown. There were so many hospitalizations because you take a, a high dose of dextromethorphan, it's not going to kill you, but you're going to be on the floor and able to move and nobody knows, you know, so I carried kids to ambulances and we were testing, we'd get their friends. What, what did they take? What did they take? And they would bring it to the table. We would test it. And we correlated these medical emergencies with DXM. That was a big media fight that I was trying to do at the time by getting this word out um, about, about that. I then asked Emmanuel whether uh, at the time, he had any concerns about being arrested himself uh, because of the testing services that he was providing? Uh, yeah, I guess I was. Um, I remember hiring a needle exchange lawyer and, uh, and having many, many meetings um, with a strategy for when I or another volunteer or a user approaching the booth got arrested. I was convinced 100% I was going to be in court 
defending myself in the same way that needle exchange volunteers defended themselves originally uh, using the necessity to defense, right? Saying, okay, maybe what we're doing is illegal, but it's uh, uh, preventing an even greater harm. And that tactic had been very successful. And, and, and now, you know, needle exchange is um, legal in many states and tolerated in most others. And um, I think we're, um, we're seeing a lot of progress around opiate harm reduction. Um, but the interesting thing is it never happened. In fact, uh, you know, Dan Safe was testing pills in uh, over two dozen cities across the country and nobody ever got arrested. Here in uh, the Bay Area, I actually worked out sort of don't ask, don't tell, you know, wink, wink agreements with the local police. And uh, I remember the first time um, they thanked me for what I was doing. So I think that, you know, that, that the Fed crackdown hadn't quite really started in the Bay Area at that time. Um, but really, I, I had the, um, I know local officials, including law enforcement, were extremely supportive. They understood what we were doing. They, know, they knew you're never going to stop this drug, right? It was the feds who ended that um, and that led up to the Rave Act that, you know, Biden authored and was passed in 2003. Um, and that really crushed the, uh, the rave community then. And, you know, what we said then certainly applied. Well, you may crush this culture, but you're not going to stop the use of ecstasy. You're just going to drive it more underground where, you know, educators and uh, outreach harm reduction workers can't reach the users to, to help reduce the harms. Um, and the, greatest irony is that now electronic uh, dance music has come back with a vengeance. It's not even underground. It is the mainstream music of the new generation. These festivals have, you know, 100,000 people attending over a two, three-day period, and there are hundreds of them around the country. And so, you know, once again, uh, prohibition and drug war tactics have proved an abysmal failure in every way you look at it. Shifting gears a bit, I brought up the fact that in the mainstream media there has been ever more talk about the dangers of MDMA, and it almost seems as if they are reporting another ecstasy-related death every week. Unfortunately, uh, MDMA-related fatalities, let's call them those for lack of a better term. We could say ecstasy-molly-related, that might be better fatalities. Um, because you never know what drug is involved, right, Um, have quadrupled over the last decade. There were about three to five fatalities a year back in 98, 99, 2000. I know because I always contact the uh, families of the deceased. I try to find out as much as I can about the causes, um, the environmental conditions, right, which contribute to um, the medical emergencies. Uh, today, uh, it's about 15 to 20 a year. Um, and, and, and part of my movie is going to be asking that question and hopefully uh, by the end making, you know, a conclusion. Why are fatalities increasing? And I, I my suspicion right now, I'm fairly confident that it's, uh, twofold, it has to do with the influx of cathinones on the market, uh, leading to uh, very different ingestion behaviors, um, and the fact that press tablets have 
uh, shrunk and mostly we're seeing loose powder. Um, also uh, leading to different kind of ingestion behaviors. So people are taking very, very large doses uh, accidentally, uh, which increases the risk of hyperthermia, heat stroke events. So, so on the one hand, uh, we have all these new drugs, many of which have uh, more danger, so they have different um, safety profiles in MDMA. And uh, while it's hard to know exactly what drug contributed to a fatality, because oftentimes toxicology reports are not made public, and when parents uh, get the tox report back and they discover that there are two or three drugs in the bloodstream, that often inclines them not to go public with um, what their son or daughter had taken because it makes it look like their son or daughter was a, you know, drug abuser, that, that they had intentionally taken all these different drugs, uh, not understanding that, like, they accidentally consumed these other drugs because they were being misidentified uh, when it was sold to them. So, so, but nonetheless, there has there was a New York uh, study, New York Public Health Department, that analyzed the 2013 deaths and discovered that methylone was involved in about half, MDMA in about half, and uh, MDMA plus methylone overlapped that too. So, um, we're seeing the cathinones, particularly methylone, um, contributing to fatalities. But beyond that, we're seeing methylone. Um, increase the dosages uh, that people are taking because the dose of methylone is very different from MDMA. A good starting dose for methylone could be 250, 300 milligrams, and then you can redose a couple hours later and keep taking another 100 milligrams. It's it's more like a cocaine-style drug. And when a young person's buying Molly and they're actually just getting a methylone or a cathinone, but they think they're taking MDMA, then one time they go and they buy their molly and it ends up being pure MDMA and they take a 300 milligram dose to start, that's way too high. So this is another reason why we're seeing an increase in fatalities. I want to jump in here and reiterate what Emmanuel just said about taking too big a dose of MDMA. I've already told my own story about this in the video that's titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, which you can find on the home page at psychedelicsalon.com. So I won't repeat that here. But there's another example that I'd like to give you. I know that many of our fellow saloners are big fans of the Joe Rogan podcast, and so you may have already listened to Joe's interview with Ethan Nadelman last August. It's his podcast number 683. Well, during their discussion about MDMA, Joe stated that he had only tried it one time and that while it was a great experience, the next day was a real tough one for him. But then he added that maybe it was because he took too big a dose. He took two pills, a double dose, right off. Now, I'm not giving Joe a hard time here because I've done the same thing. Back in the early days when MDMA first hit the streets, we had next to no knowledge about how to use it. And since acid and mushrooms always provided a bigger bang with an increased dose, well, that same we figured should be true for MDMA. But it isn't the same at all. For one thing, the mechanism the brain uses for processing these different substances varies quite a bit. As we heard from uh, Rick Doblin last week, their research has now shown that for therapeutic work, a 75 milligram dose seems uh, optimal for most people. 
But uh, like Joe, I consider myself a hardhead, and so sometimes I use way more than what was needed for a good trip. For me, uh, and I weigh around 180 pounds, uh, <laughs> I have no idea how many stones that is for you Brits, but at my weight and for my metabolism, I discovered the, through much trial and error that the perfect dose for me was around 120 milligrams. Now, getting back to my conversation with Emmanuel, I also pointed out the fact that although deaths from ecstasy slash molly has uh, quadrupled over the past decade, the total number of deaths per year worldwide is only 15 to 20. Whereas uh, on average uh, here in the States, there are over 90 deaths in traffic accidents each and every day. And that number is about the same from accidental falling. So while it is a tragedy that anyone is dying from the use of substances that are denied to us because of prohibition, these are uh, nonetheless very safe substances when properly used by people who know what they are taking and what they are doing. Right. And, and I actually think what you had said just a second ago is an understatement. Uh, I do like to always clarify the number of people dying from MDMA worldwide is tiny, tiny compared to almost all other illicit drugs and um, many legal prescription drugs too. Even aspirin kills 400 people a year. So I like to say that and put that in context and clarify, you know, because the actual uh, safety profile of a drug should be a large consideration on what our drug policy should be around it. Um, it's one of the reasons that cannabis is now being legalized. The, the public now knows and is very aware it's a very safe drug, uh, much safer than alcohol, et cetera. Well, MDMA is in that class, too. It's an extremely safe drug. And I, while, 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 but nonetheless, I have devoted a large part of my life to reducing those fatalities because I care. Um, so I don't want to present a skewed perspective as I talk about fatalities around MDMA, um, the real uh, takeaway point is that even though these fatalities are extremely low, the ones that do happen are easily preventable with appropriate education and regulation of the environments in which they're being taken. Because the vast majority of fatalities around MDMA are heat stroke. They're not overdoses. It's not like the person is pushing their euphoria limits and just taking too much. You know, like uh, when you call it an overdose, you put the blame on the victim. There's a public perception that the user was being irresponsible. Um, but really, these are heat stroke deaths that are highly correlated with the ambient temperature. Um, for example, uh, Shelley Goldsmith, whose story we'll be telling in our movie because we're following her mother, who has become an advocate uh, to amend the Rave Act uh, to exempt harm reduction efforts from being used against promoters. Uh, because the venue in which Shelley, uh, where she was at, where she had taken her MDMA, uh, was over 100 degrees inside. Also, I've been working with uh, Heather Brooks, whose son, Bo Brooks, died just four or five months ago, uh, probably six months ago, during the summer in the Washington Gorge at a festival called Paradiso. Um, I remember that weekend because even here in Northern California, we felt the heat wave. And it was 105 degrees during this event. 
when Bo Brooks col- collapsed and eventually died. So if we understand uh, that uh, serotonin-based drugs uh, inhibit your thermoregulation, make you more likely to suffer heat stroke, then we can regulate industries, you know, entertainment industries to, you know, provide safe settings and uh, prevent these tragedies from happening. But unfortunately, the Rave Act, which holds promoters accountable for drug use at their events, makes them reluctant to work with Dance Safe or other public health groups to acknowledge that drugs are, are being used and make the environment safer because they're afraid that that's going to be used against them as a violation of the Rave Act and they could have their assets confiscated and go to jail. Very directly, lawyers and insurance reps for these promotion companies are telling them not to work with public health because it's too much of a risk. That is incredible and that needs to change. I can remember back when Joe Biden's Rave Act was being debated in Congress and everybody I knew was saying that this act would actually result in these events becoming less safe for participants because of the liability that was placed on organizers uh, if they allowed Dance Safe and other organizations to properly test the drugs that inevitably were to be found at these events. In fact, unless I'm mistaken, even the Burning Man organization didn't allow drug safety to be featured in any theme camps uh, for fear of seeming to encourage drug use. Uh, I think that's changed now, but that was the way for a long time. The Rave Act uh, seems to me to be a perfect example of the law of unintended consequences. Absolutely, and that's why DD's campaign is focusing on what's known as unintended consequences of the law, right? She, um, she's taking a somewhat conservative approach, saying, well, she's not trying to overturn the law entirely. She just wants to amend it so that certain promotion promoter behaviors uh, are exempted and anything that tries to improve the safety of events <laughs> is like a no-brainer uh, she doesn't believe Joe Biden ever intended for his law to have these uh, this, this send this chill through the industry and prevent uh, common sense safety measures Recently, I've been exchanging correspondence with some young parents who were involved in the rave scene when they were younger themselves and who now have children of their own who pretty soon will be reaching an age where they're going to be exposed to the drug culture through their friends and schoolmates. And while the parents understand many of the facts about how to use these substances safely, they nonetheless are not quite sure how to go about being completely honest with their own children but without exposing themselves to having their children taken away from them by overzealous drug warriors. In fact, there is a current case here in the States where a Navy veteran who is suffering from PTSD and is treating his condition with medical marijuana has had his five children taken away from him and his wife simply because they were planning on moving from Kansas to Colorado so that he could grow cannabis for other veterans who are suffering from PTSD. Just his planning to move to another state caused those screwheads in Kansas to take his children away. Veterans' children taken away on the grounds of child endangerment. Wow, what a country, huh? So my question to Emmanuel was whether he would be covering uh, topics like this in the documentary that he's now making. Uh, yes, and that's uh, an interesting question precisely because my documentary is going to center around that. The, the fact is I now have uh, 
teenager who's interested in psychedelics, and I have the same fears that all parents have, and it really is challenging knowing how to how to deal with that. How do you talk to your teenager about drugs? There are lots of issues that complicate that process. Um, you know, primarily number one is uh, prohibition, right? You know, you you're, you're oh, so. But I've walked the talk. I am open and honest with her. I've told her about um, my uh, past drug use and how to use responsibly if you choose it to. And I've ensured her that um, I would pay for her to send any powder she finds to uh, ecstasy data to test that she should never take a mystery powder unless it's gas chromatography tested. You know, I mean, maybe in some ways she's lucky that she has a parent with the knowledge uh, that I have, but, um, but I certainly want to show in this film appropriate uh, alternative models of drug education and, um, communication between parents and teenagers because one of the big problems that makes drug use so dangerous is like, there are no authorities young people can trust around drug information. Uh, teachers won't talk to them honestly because they're afraid if they do they're going to get accused of promoting drug use. Parents are afraid to talk to their kids honestly about drugs because well if their kid goes and tells their friend oh well my mom said that blah 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 and then they go and tell their parents and their parents like are alarmed you know they can feed back negatively you know, it's just uh, unfortunate that honest conversations are stifled because of drug war culture. Um, and hopefully my movie will demonstrate that and, and lead to some progress on that front. And one of the things I want to highlight in my movie is um, all the various ways people use the drug, right? I'm sort of taking the audience on an exploration of MDMA, uh, answering some questions. One is, who is it and why? Uh, why are some people dying and what can we do about it? What is the best drug policy, best drug education uh, models we can use, and how do you talk to kids about drugs? Those are kind of the five main questions I'll be answering as I, you know, uh, the sort of overall story arc of the film. And the first one, you know, who uses this drug and why, it really spans a wide spectrum. On the one hand, we have very strict uh, medical use for the treatment of debilitating ailments like PTSD. Um, so I'll be following the story of two veterans who have used the drug for that purpose. It's really compelling friendship story, uh, very emotional, amazing. We've already filmed most of that. Uh, then I'll also be filming a um, wealthy conservative couple with kids in Canada who use the drug uh, four times a year for, you know, sort of couples counseling for their own relationship. Um, that's a very, very common uh, way of use that I think a lot of the public doesn't know about because they think it's just this sort of countercultural rave drug. And then, of course, we're also going to show the, the, the party, you know, festival youth side. We follow a young woman who takes it with her best friend on her birthday and is a very responsible user of, of MDMA, tests it first, uh, et cetera. So we're actually showing uh, three types of, of use in the film. I then mentioned the fact that back in the 1980s, when I first became involved with MDMA, that perhaps the most widespread use of it in the Dallas, Texas area was by couples who were just taking it together and discovering that while under its influence, they were able to talk about issues that they had uh, been keeping from one another and uh, that this, without even the help of a trained therapist, did an awful lot to help them work out the kinks of their relationship. Yeah, yeah, very common, you know, um, really... I benefited tremendously, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, when I was a teenager, um, 
the um, the uh, empathy, including self acceptance, that the drug provides people is healing and therapeutic in in so many ways. At least for a large segment of the population, I recently read a study. I want to pursue more that um, correlates that with a genetic oxytocin receptor. Did you see that study? Yeah, it's incredible. It's sort of like a next generation of MDMA studies. They, um, I, I, I think the researchers had the foresight to wonder, well, why well, some people get this profound, and most people, I believe, um, and, I, and I've talked to thousands, remember, I've talked to personally, face-to-face, thousands of young people who have used this drug, and uh, most of them uh, do receive this profound healing empathy and insight. But there are some people that don't and they scratch their head and they said, well, you know, I have fun on it. It's stimulating, but I just, you know, I've never really had the effect that other people have. Right. And and ironically, even Sasha, right. Didn't really get the magic. Right. And has told me in my interview with her that, you know, Sasha really didn't like MDMA too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The irony of irony. Right, like he recognized its potential, and then when he gave it to Leo Zeff, of course, that he's really the Johnny Appleseed of MDMA. Went around training therapists and how to use it. But uh, this recent study was—they uh, actually um, looked at, at the genetic profiles of a number of MDMA users and had them surveyed them to find out what their experiences were like, and correlated an oxytoc- oxytocin gene. To with people who had more profound empathy effects um, uh, from the drug. So there, there's a lot more research that needs to happen, but, you know, uh, I'm inclined to suspect that, 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 that that's correct. Um, oxytocin is the hormone of love and bonding, right? It's what comes out in mothers when they give birth and are breastfeeding and um, uh, fascinating stuff. I then mentioned the fact that of the several hundred people that I've helped during their first-time use of MDMA, that almost without exception, their first response was that they had actually felt like that before. For me, and uh, for many of my friends, it brought us back to one of those wonderful days of childhood when everything seemed perfect. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, I said this myself, and I have witnessed a number of other people say this the first time they've take they take MDMA, and that is something along the lines of, "Oh my God, how can this be illegal?" <laughs> right? Because because you know you're you're fed all this drugs are bad kind of thing. They bring the worst out in you. They disinhibit you, and you do embarrassing things. That's the general conception of drugs, and you know whether. People that haven't done drugs, that's what they think mostly, whether it's cocaine, heroin, LSD, whatever. They, they just think, oh, they're addictive. They give you all this pleasure, this kind of nasty pleasure that, that can take away your willpower. And then you do embarrassing things, right? Well, you know, to the degree that we've all sort of internalized that, um, you know, myth around illegal drugs, when you take MDMA, it is like diametrically the opposite for many people. It brings the best out in you. It makes you sort of think caring and compassionate thoughts about people that you may have had a grudge against. You know, you, nobody feels guilty 
after they've taken MDMA. It's almost impossible to, right? So in many ways, MDMA is the perfect drug to sort of end uh, the drug war, right? To erase the drug stigmas and the sort of, you know, medieval, you know, guilt-ridden propaganda around drugs that, that even still today drives the drug war. Although my original intent in talking with Emmanuel was to learn more about MDMA, the movie that he is currently producing, I almost forgot to ask him uh, who the intended audience was for the movie and how he was going to go about releasing it. Great. I'm glad you asked that. Um, you know, I always think big. Um, and what I'm what I tell people at first is, you know, I'm, I'm not producing a niche documentary on a psychedelic that is only going to be appealing to uh, people in the know. I am producing a drug policy reform documentary that it will in, that intentionally uh, is going for a mainstream audience. This is why I'll be dealing with you know drug policy issues and drug education, how to talk to your kids about drugs, etc. So my goal is to have a mainstream release. Uh, either sell to a large distributor or put one hundred dollars to $300,000 into uh, marketing a producer-controlled release and get this movie seen in hundreds of theaters around the country before uh, you go to the secondary markets of theatrical release in Europe and Australia. I want this to be an international film. I think it has international appeal. I've already received emails from a number of distributors in European countries asking me to, you know, can they distribute it? So I, I, I really have high hopes this is going to be a, um, a very well-received um, film that makes a lot of money. Um, to that end, we have an investment vehicle already, and our first three investors have come on board. Um, so the best way to help right now is to spread the word that uh, we're looking for investors to join our our LLC and uh, become part owners in it and um, help produce the um, the best drug policy reform film yet made that pivots around what I believe should should and will end up being the second drug legalized uh, after marijuana. Yeah, the the best way to find out more about the film is to go to mdmathemovie.com. Uh, we have an email sign-up, um, which should, you won't get bombarded, maybe one email a month. We send out an update on how the film was going. We also have a lot of pre-release videos on there. I do want to say that 95% of what we've put up on the website as pre-release videos will not be in the actual documentary. We are saving the best uh, for last. So, But nonetheless... Uh, that some of this, our pre-release stuff is really, really good. We interviewed Julie Holland, Rick Doblin, Matthew Baggett, etc. So um, people can check that out. And there's a blog where they can read our previous updates. And um, uh, they can forward any uh, potential investors uh, to the website where all the emails come directly to me. Finally, I asked Emmanuel if he had any final comments for us. Yeah, there is then. Uh, uh, since you say that most of your audience is young people, I, I want to uh, thank them because I have a lot of hope in the younger generation of psychedelic users today. I, I, I don't um, criticize the older generation uh, for their chosen tactics, uh, but um, I think you know that the progression of the movement now is, is, is really inspiring, where sort of the early generation of psychedelic 
activists kind of stuck with a very strict academic and medical model. The younger generation has become much more out and proud about their sort of sacred and or recreational use. Um, they're going on the offensive more, criticizing prohibition for jeopardizing lives, right? Instead of just being defensive, they're being offensive. And I think that's what we need right now. We need to take back from the drug warriors the label of protecting the children. Because the truth is, prohibition endangers children. Prohibition kills. And we need to legalize and regulate these drugs uh, so that adults can have safe legal access and we can reduce access of unregulated criminal markets uh, to our children. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, then you already know that the main reason I've been doing these podcasts is to do what I can to help end this insane war on drugs by presenting some actual facts about drug prohibition so as to counter the uh, more or less brain-dead people who think that just saying no is the way to go. Face it, the generation of young people now under 30 years old already are far, far ahead of where any of us older people were uh, even a decade ago. When I was a teenager, we often said, never trust anyone over 30. And uh, now that I'm in my 70s, I've actually come back to that way of thinking. You know, the main thing that I think us older people can provide these days is a little perspective in the benefit of our experience, uh, mainly our experience in uh, figuring out what doesn't work and how quickly things can go wrong. But when it comes to the use of drugs in our society, we need to be sure that the youngest among us are having their opinions heard. After all, uh, it isn't going to be all that long before today's 20-year-olds have become the old people. But they're the ones who are going to be living through the decades ahead, and in my opinion, they should have a much larger role in determining how their world works. During the American War in Vietnam, I can remember my friends saying that whether a nation goes to war should actually be decided by people under 30, because they're the ones who are going to be paying for it, and that all of the fighting should be restricted to people over 60. <laughs> now, wouldn't that make for a much different world today? Well, I hope that you've been able to take something away from today's podcast that will spur you on to becoming more involved in helping to shape the policies that are needed to bring an end to the establishment's war on people who use non-prescription drugs. There's still a lot of work to be done, and if you're in college these days, then becoming involved with Students for a Sensible Drug Policy would be a great first step. And if there isn't a chapter of SSDP on your campus, well, then maybe you should be the person to organize one at your school. And whether you are a student, a parent, or a grandparent, uh, sitting down with your closest friends and family to listen to what Emmanuel has to say here in this podcast is something that may make more of a difference in the lives of those you love than you might suspect. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>